This episode contains spoilers for Kubrick's The Shining from 1980, and also for the book somewhat. We're not going to be talking about the 97 television series, so if you're into that one, you're safe. If all that sounds good to you, then please enjoy the show. Red rum. Come again? Red rum. This isn't... That's not for another few episodes. We're not having rum on this episode. We already did rum like not too long. Is that your Danny impression? Red rum. Oh my... <laughs> I'm terrified right now. You should be. You're like staring blankly off into space. You're like either deep in thought or... You know, thinking about taking an axe. Maybe to, I have the me. shining. Yeah. Okay. That's also true. You could also be. Uh, Would you really be that surprised if I had these psychic abilities? Not really, but I mean, I feel like it would be also. I mean, where was that at when we were buying a car, yo? <laughs> where was that at when <laughs> you know I needed I needed? Some- I only see things when they're like super horrific, you know. Sort of like Danny. I don't know. I just bought, we just bought a car recently for the first time. And I think anybody watching would be horrified by what they saw. So <laughs> you probably should have seen it come. That's all I'm going to say. But either way, I'm glad to know that you have The Shining. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's so mysterious. the now turning our, point for now our, our relationship. Our listeners are going to wonder like what our car looks like. It, it's actually a nice car. It looks like a snowcat. But the process of getting it was during a pandemic and going to a bunch of dealerships was not fun. It looks yes. like a snowcat um, <laughs> with the spark plugs torn out and uh, a crazy person that's going to kill us. Oh, okay. All right, that's enough of this bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, hi, cars on our mind. Listeners, we do have cars on our mind and Unlike Wendy in the film we're going to be talking about <laughs> this week. Um, my name is Pat. I'm Marissa. And you're listening to Movie Mixology, the podcast for amateur bartenders and movie lovers alike, where every week we take a film and then a beverage and alcoholic drink from or inspired by said film. And then we watch and enjoy both very, very greatly. We do. And it's a lot of fun, and I am so grateful that you all are still listening after all these episodes. <laughs> I know, right? Our listenership has probably tanked by this point, but for those of you still listening, you you guys are the real truth. It's very exciting. Um, also, I, I feel like we never really acknowledge, but I feel like this is now an appropriate time. Like, our international listeners, like, shout out to you guys. Those of you listening outside of the U.S., um, you know, the platform that we post our podcasts on tells us you know if we have listeners in other countries and we just want to say that's pretty awesome guys thank you for listening to us yeah even if you're like some person in uh louisiana or (laughs) california or virginia listening on a vpn and pretending that you're in india or ireland 
I'm going to pretend that you are. Yeah. And for that, I think it's way cooler. No, I'm just a hundred percent. It's it's way cool either way that we just have we appreciate all of our listeners to begin. No, with. we really do. I still don't believe that we have listeners. Like I'm still in denial about it. Right. And it's just our parents yeah. constantly <laughs> refreshing that feed. For I really us. think it. It Shout might. Shout out, be. mom and dad. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Number one. Yeah. <laughs> you guys are the best. Um, but. The shining. Aside, the shining. The shining. That's what we're talking about. We're going to be talking about the shining. What better way to bring in the holiday season? <laughs> <laughs> been waiting yep. to say that. Some of you in the country have snow outside. This is a snowy ass movie. Uh, it's very cheery, full of family tradition, family fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In the year of 2020, what better way to bring in the holidays than to... Uh, watch a film about a family that's stuck indoors. Yeah, this... Yeah, I mean... I guess that really couldn't be... It was going to be one of my like points about the connection between quarantine and this movie. But really, I guess it's just kind of... We just have to get it out at the beginning. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, there have been people, friends, who have contacted us ever since we made this podcast. And are like, dude, are you going to do The Shining? Because that's like the perfect quarantine movie. Like, we've literally had people tell us that. And on top of that, not only is it a perfect quarantine movie, sorry to interrupt, but before I forget, also, it is like one of the best drink movies. Like, uh, it has one of the most iconic drinking scenes oh, in yes. a film. And so, this movie was on the forefront of our ideas when we considered this podcast. 100%. We're super excited to finally do it. Um, and yeah, let's, you know, get right into it. Um, you know, The Shining, directed by Stanley Kubrick, 1980, and uh, written by Kubrick and I believe um, one other person, if I'm not mistaken. You have the IMDb, the other writer. Yeah, Steam Screenplays, Kubrick and Diane Johnson. And then, of course, uh, it's based on the novel by Stephen King. Yeah. Which uh, is a whole other bag of worms. <laughs> <laughs> Which we'll, we'll touch on a little bit in this in this show. Can of worms. I keep saying bag. I feel like that's like the second time I've said bag of worms on this podcast. That is not a saying. Marissa. Yeah. It's like the 17th <laughs> time you've said it in life and that at least since I've known you. <laughs> I'm, but, I, uh, I mess up sayings that aren't even said anymore. It's <laughs> part of my personality. That's but, all right. I, I, still, I still love you. Thank so, you. I love you too. Let's uh, <laughs> go into uh, the drink too while yeah. we're at it. All right. So this movie um, features Jack Nicholson, who is playing Jack Torrance. Well, I just made the connection that they're both named Jack. I don't know why I didn't make that connection before, but <laughs> um, <laughs> he um, starts to, you know, if this is your first time seeing the movie, you might think that he's having uh, delusions um, and hallucinations after being in isolation for so long. And he believes that there are other people living at this hotel. There's a bartender who serves him, um, Jack Daniels. In the movie, they just call it bourbon, but the you know they show the bottle and it's clearly Jack Daniels. Um, and... You know, this is a really important scene for many reasons because it's kind of the turning point in the film when you get into the more spooky, supernatural points in the film. And I think that, you know, this scene where he goes and talks to a bartender that, you know, you may think isn't actually there. But then as you get further into the film, and and I guess if you've read the book too, you know that these characters are maybe not Jack's 
hallucinations or delusions, but they are actually, you know, kind of ghosts living in the hotel or remnants of different things that happened in the hotel. And, um, you know, it's kind of up to your interpretation of this movie. And we'll kind of get into how people interpret this movie differently than the book. Even there's all kinds of interpretations out there. But that aside, of course, we want to mention and, you know, we recognize this even more after rewatching the film that this scene um, kind of and this whole movie kind of explores themes um, about you know, family issues related to, you know, alcoholism and things like that, which is a very serious, obviously, and heavy topic that we never want to make light of. And so, of course, we want to acknowledge that in this scene, it kind of seems that Jack is kind of slipping maybe back into that old habit. and Of alcoholism. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. And this, I think, is is a very important part of the movie as a whole, be in the book, I guess it's explored even further, um, the, the kind of issues that arise with that. And um, we just want to say, of course, we don't want to make light of that. But Obviously, but yeah. <laughs> we're going to get into this actual scene a little bit. So Jack orders um, bourbon on the rocks, mm-hmm. specifically. And this kind of, I just wanted to say real quick, it kind of signals um, the turning point into when we get sort of the new i guess spooky part of the movie oh yeah 100 <laughs> percent. it's the most pivotal scene in the film by far because it goes from oh this man is just somebody trying to get over the fact that they're a bad person an asshole into oh now they have fully embraced the sinister side and that's going to be prevalent throughout the rest of the movie um this also breaks a little bit of our tradition. Um, they never actually say that this is Jack Daniel's whiskey mm-hmm. in the film. First, for our, it's a first for our uh, from episodes. You know, this isn't an inspired by. If you watch the scene, you know you couldn't pay me to tell me that it's not Jack Daniel's being poured into into <laughs> the glass. I mean, the side profile of the shot is clearly a Jack Daniel's inspired design. It's. It looks almost identical to the modern day design used on the bottles. So we picked up some Jack Daniels, which we're sipping on now to kind of mirror Jack Torrance in the movie. Yeah. Fun fact about Jack Daniels is that, you know, I guess it's a little story time about when we went to get uh, the drink of choice for this, because a lot of times we already have like the basic um, uh, liquors that we need to mix cocktails for this podcast. So we just kind of use those and then maybe get some limes or something to mix in, but occasionally we'll need to go out and get like a brand name or something that we don't have. And right. um, on hand, we actually didn't have Jack Daniels, which is interesting because a lot of times we do have that on hand. But so we were like, oh, maybe we'll get, you know, those like little mini ones from mm-hmm. the supermarket that are like a dollar. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, little shooters. Yeah, but I guess Jack Daniels is, because, you know, we're like, why spend the money for a full bottle? But you know, I guess Jack Daniels is so popular that it was actually like less expensive to get a small bottle than it was to get the, you know, three or four shooters that we would need to record this episode. Right. <laughs> so, because, you know, so this is kind of interesting. I don't know if anyone cares. It's like cost analysis, but I was uh, like. For the record, though, <laughs> we typically ball out when it comes to trying to buy as many liquors as possible. I, I like collecting 
alcohol. It's one of the, oh, wow. the okay. main drivers yeah. of our show. I feel like this is a key difference between Patrick and I. I'm like, how can we save money? And like, yeah, well, <laughs> you know, I like to save money in uh, more important things. But I mean, our podcast is our hobby and it is also one of the things we enjoy doing. So I will splurge on that's that. That's true. So that's why, uh, among other things, we sometimes go with the name brand and sometimes we try to do exactly what they say in the movie and it really didn't occur to us until we rewatched it this time that yeah they really don't say jack daniels in the scene which is so funny because it's so intertwined with this mm-hmm. film it's so iconic. because the main character's name is jack main character's name is jack the character he's based on's name is jack he's drinking a bottle that looks yeah the actor's like name is jack, jack. The actor's <laughs> name is jack I mean, you can't think about The Shining without thinking about the name Jack. And so Mm -hmm. I think that absolutely lends weight to our decision right now to have a nice little highball of Jack along with this recording. So, uh, guys, do we sound defensive yet that we've broken our rule? (laughs) (laughs) You guys, I mean, people probably aren't even paying attention to our rule. But our rule is typically that we want the name of the drink to be mentioned in the movie or, or to have an inspired by a drink that's inspired by the movie. This one's kind of an in-between where Jack Daniels isn't actually said, but the word bourbon is, and then they're drinking it out of a Jack Daniels <laughs> bottle. So you know what? We're just having fun. We're having like a third variation kind of episode, and it's yeah, great. Uh, and people won't care about our rules. They just want to hear us talk about The Shining, yeah. which, oh my God. I mean- is this fair to say this is probably the most influential movie we've done on the show? You keep saying that, but I think we just got to go back to Hocus Pocus, you know? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, bit. <laughs> I think that, no, this definitely is a movie that not only has been influential for so many directors and future like genre type films, but it also is a classic in that people still talk about it and still have theories about it, mm-hmm. you know? And I feel like I was kind of, you know, I don't even know that we can really fully talk about everything because there's so many interesting theories out there and so many interpretations. It's kind of like reading a classic novel where, you know, whether you study it in high school English or a college lit class and you've got all these discussions going about, you know, what does the purple dress mean or whatever. That's right. this movie. Is but the like, dress black and gold yeah. or is it blue and black? <laughs> oh, god! You remember that? <laughs> I do, yes. Um, and this movie, definitely, yeah, super influential, super exciting to talk about. Um, okay, yeah, and it might not be the most influential movie in the podcast where we've done Casablanca yeah. and North by Northwest because just they've had longer time to Although, be influential. I would argue that probably more people who are listening to this podcast had already seen The Shining than had seen either of those two films. Well, sure. Yeah. Or have at least heard of The Shining or heard, here's Johnny or, or some, some reference. reference to I The think Shining. Way, the quotes are way more iconic than anything in all the other movies we've done so yeah. far. And yeah, 40 years old this year. Wow. Kind of wild. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah, 1980. Yeah. Pretty nuts. But let's get into the things that we have to talk about about this movie. We're going to get into our first segment Uh, where we take our top three things and appropriately title this segment, Triple Shot. It's time for Triple Shot. All right, Marissa, I think I went first on In the Name of the Father. I think you did. 
Okay. Yeah. So that was our. I feel like in the name of the Father was like just such a beautiful episode because we were talking about so many you know deep themes and. Yeah, let's uh, take that same deepness, but like make it way more horrific, and <laughs> we'll get a great episode out of this one too. Yeah. Um, what is your first shot that you had when talking about Kubrick's Shining? Um, Not the TV adaptation that Stephen King likes a lot more. Hey, yo. <laughs> okay, so my first shot is about how this is a movie I would have loved to see in theaters. Yeah. And I think that this kind of idea is especially amped up uh, today when we just got news that HBO is going to be showing all of Warner Brothers uh, movies next year that are coming out or supposed to come out in theaters, but they're all still coming out on HBO, just like Wonder Woman is. And so a lot of people... Specifically HBO Max. Yeah. A lot of people who are, you know, movie theater fans, uh, as we have been, you know, kind of sad this year in general because of uh, the pandemic is like, is this the end of movie theaters? You know, I think that may be a little dramatic, but I do think that eventually movie theaters are going to be kind of antiquated, kind of like, you know, going to the drive-in is antiquated. I think, you know, you and I, once it's safe, we'll start going to the movies again, but I think it's never going to be the same. And I mean, that's a whole other discussion. I'm not going to get down you know be sad about that <laughs> um i'm gonna move on from that Man, but heavy stuff <laughs> you know i love the movie theaters one of my favorite places to go and so yeah it's sad but what do you think would make this one great to see in okay, the theater yeah so um i really wanted to see or this is a movie that i really would want to see in the theater um because it's just so cinematic in its scenes, the sounds, like the soundtrack, the score, you know, it keeps you on edge the whole time. Um, the sound, the score, everything just kind of keeps you on edge the whole time. You know, the different shots, it's kind of like, you know, moving from one thing to another, the snowy background, the movement of the characters, the blood, you know, everything is just so cinematic. Um, that's Kubrick. Yeah. And I think that that's the kind of thing that's like, I'm going to miss because, you know, I've had so many people tell me like, you know, I don't really care that, that the movie theaters are not a thing anymore. I just rather watch things for free on Netflix. And I'm like, dude, but the movie theaters are such an experience, you know? And I think, sure, there's certain movies that you go and see at the movie theaters that, you could have just caught at home on Netflix because they're just kind of like basically, uh, I don't know, more like a TV show in that it's just like somebody's day-to-day -day life in a movie. But this movie is one of those movies that is an experience. You know, a, a modern-day equivalent I can think of is Inception, right? It's like an experience when you watch it, and it's so much better, I think, from a theater viewing perspective than it is from watching at home. For our listeners, if you're playing the drinking game where you take a drink every time Marissa mentions Nolan, <laughs> there's your cue. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm just going to go hide in the corner now. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I was just thinking about how much I would have loved to see this movie in theaters and how I'm sad that, you know, we haven't been to the theaters really this year except for like at the very beginning of the year and we did make an exception for tenant but we went when there was like just us in the theater and then we quarantined for like two weeks 
But other than that, you know, we haven't been able to go to the theater and next year we probably won't go until it's safe. And I just think, you know, when I see movies like this, I'm grateful that now, you know, we have surround sound and things like that at home where we can experience movie theater like esque things. But at the same time, you know, it just makes me think, man, you know, this is this is such a different movie than, you know, say something that you do catch on Netflix that is maybe a Netflix original movie that's super fun to watch and enjoyable, but it's not like cinematic. It's not like, man, I was just glued to the screen the whole time, you know, and this is one of those movies. I I don't really know how else to explain my feelings about it other than that it is cinematic and I wish I would have been able to see it in the theater. Well, let me try, I think, and and maybe explain what you're trying to get across because I completely agree with you. And I think the best way to put it for those who are wondering what the hell we're talking about is that (laughs) movies like The Shining are an experience no matter where you see them, but they're so good even when you see them at home that to a movie fan that enjoys the theater-going experience, seeing that in a theater would be a high. It would be an amplification of all of the great cinematic things that you just talked about, which can be enjoyed on your home theater at home with a big TV or even with surround sound or even without those things. And But when you go into a theater and you are in a room that is completely dedicated to engrossing yourself with that. I mean, that's the magic of movies in a nutshell and going to the movies theaters in a nutshell. And I think that you perfectly described that like almost undescribable feeling of of just having that sensation of having those things, you know, hit your senses in such a unique way. The Shining is good enough to do that even on like a small screen. Yeah, I think you described it perfectly. That was beautiful. It's kind of the difference, you know, seeing something like this that was made for the theater is kind of versus watching it at home is kind of like the difference between seeing, you know, like a Super Bowl game at home, which is still exciting. Well, maybe not the last couple ones, but yeah, watching well. one at home versus actually being in the stadium, you right. know, and, and seeing and feeling it all firsthand. You know? Right, exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah, you know, it's like this movie was made to be in a room with popcorn and gripping the armrest <laughs> of your seat and, you know, in fear. And uh, the holiday was made for sitting <laughs> at home on your sofa. And there's nothing wrong with that movie, which we just watched. It, yeah, it was great. It was great. We had a great time it's watching it. It's funny. That was what was on my mind, too, because that was probably the last, probably because on both of our minds, because that was the last Netflix movie we both saw. <laughs> yeah, I guarantee you it wouldn't make a difference seeing that in a packed theater or at home, just, you know, yeah. by yourself. So that is, I think, the difference that we're trying to harp on. So I couldn't agree more with you. So talking about my first shot, you know me, I'm the themes guy. I like talking about movie themes. Ding. You know, you like talking Nolan, I like talking <laughs> themes. So take a drink, listeners. Um, one of my favorite themes that I kind of picked up the first time I watched The Shining, but didn't realize it was not only the most plebeian, common reading of The Shining, was the destruction of nature and the destruction of what is currently there by some 
outside presence, outside force. And I don't know if that's present in, in King's book. I've never read King's book. I've only seen The Shining the film uh, multiple times. And that theme seems to be, it has so many like illusions and, and metaphors and indicators that that's what Kubrick was going for that I just don't think that it, it could be anything else. Way better writers and people than uh, me have written about this. And we'll, I might post a link or something in the show notes um, to some interesting theories about that. But I think that it just it so beats you over the head. I mean, you talk about Kubrick's cinematic eye and his amazing attention to detail. It's one of the things he's famous for. One of the first shots when Jack Nicholson's character, Jack Torrance, is in the office of his boss, Stuart Ullman, trying to get a job as the caretaker of the Overlook Hotel, you notice that there's like a little American flag on Stuart's desk. Mm-hmm. And that's because this, I think, is a huge metaphor for taking over this land by, you know, Anglo settlers into Native American lands. Um which is an insanely uh, high concept topic to broach in a horror film like this. And it's going to go over most people's heads, especially first time you see it. It's not really meant to be the, the, uh, the center stage message. It's supposed to be subliminal. It's supposed to be something that you just kind of don't really notice is going on in the background. There's so many tapestries and rugs in the Overlook Hotel that are Native American or Indo American like influenced. Um, Stewart actually mentions expositorily that this Overlook Hotel was built on top of an Indian burial ground. And, you know, there's a lot of theories out there that um, the blood, the most, one of the most iconic scenes in the movie is the blood that is flooding out of this elevator that Danny originally sees in his shining vision at the beginning of the movie. And, then later Wendy sees it actually manifesting um, near the end. Um, and a lot of people stipulate that that is the, the blood of natives that was spilt trying to, you know, westwardly expand and build that hotel, you know? It's, it's such a present theme and there's so many different things that I think it's impossible to really deny it. Um, and this rewatch, I think I kind of took it a step further in my mind because I, I used to think it was just about that, you know, the, the destruction of the Native American way of life. But now I think it's more than that. Now I think it's also about just nature being destroyed by civilization. Mm-hmm. Because the shots in this film, for those of you who have not seen it, this has some of the most iconic, beautiful shots of these mountains that they filmed in Montana. In the opening sequence, there's helicopter shots uh, following a road and following Jack's uh, Volkswagen going through these winding, sidewinding roads in the mountains. And it's just beautiful seeing these incredible places in the United States that are just untouched by anything. And this was 40 years ago. I don't know how much has changed now. Who knows? But at least 40 years ago, even then, there were places in this country that were just so uh, preserved, breathtaking, right? And meanwhile, you've got this hotel that's just full of all this evil and full of all these things that are just, you know, going to uh, supersede all that beauty. And I think that that is just a very interesting, uh, like, thing that they talk about. They also talk about the Donner Party. They have the, um, like I mentioned, the U.S. flag 
<laughs> at one point in that iconic Jack Nicholson drinking scene at the bar with Lloyd, the bartender, he even says that this is white man's burden. You know? What yeah. I mean? Like, it's, there's so many things that kind of indicate that scene. And I think that um, I'm just going to choose to interpret it as this is the destruction of nature. And, you know, uh, that's the cool thing about this movie. It's another reason why it's so influential, so iconic, is because there's so many readings into it. None of them are necessarily right, but you could make a case for all of them. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think that, you know, the definitely all these different themes that you've brought up, whether it be the um, destruction of, or, you know, destroying Native American peoples and their culture and and taking away their land in order to build, you know, this hotel and civilization um, and and all the horrors that go with that. And also, you know, the destruction of the beautiful nature that goes along with that process as well. Um, I think that it it is so interesting how it, it is really in the background of this movie because if you just watch this movie from a straight story perspective, you're just going to be like, wow, there's this guy who wants to be a writer and he goes and has like this quarantine crisis <laughs> with his family and gradually goes insane. And there's haunting, this this hotel is basically haunted and his son has supernatural powers. There's already like a lot going on in terms of the plot itself. Yep. But the fact that, you know, this is one of those movies where you can go way deeper than the plot and actually analyze, like you said, what is going on in the subtext, the background is, I think you said it perfectly, is what makes this movie so special because it is so much like re- reading a classic novel because you can just keep analyzing and analyzing yeah. and analyzing. Every time you watch it, there's something new and you think, oh, you know, I think, too, even as you get older and, and maybe, you know, watch this movie for the first time as a teenager, you have one interpretation. Then as a young adult, you have another interpretation. A few years later, an even different interpretation. <laughs> I feel like yeah. it's one of those movies that changes as your life changes, just as all great classic novels are like that, you know? Yeah. And by the way, I found out this recently, but White Man's Burden is actually a poem by Rudyard Kipling. And I oh. think Jack is actually referencing that. Um, yeah. It, it, and that poem actually, I think, uh, advocates American colonialism, oh. <laughs> which is kind of a, a, a terrible look. Um, right. And not something that, you know, we personally... Uh, but Jack uphold. is not like a great guy. He's, exactly. His character, especially the way he's portrayed in the film, maybe not in the book as we've learned because we've we've read some, you know, we've always kind of known that people who love the Stephen King novel don't like this film or maybe have some, you know, issues with it. And one of those is the character of Jack himself is kind of more of, of an asshole or sinister from the start in the movie, whereas in the book, maybe he's a little bit more human. Right. Yeah, um, which is, you know, we'll talk about it, but that's, I think, one of the things that they yeah. just didn't want to do. So we'll definitely post a link to that article um, that I think uh, a lot of people take this theory from. Um, it's an essay that was written in the Washington Post back in the 80s, um, kind of talking about that, you know, allegory for the destruction of the Native American 
race, you know, um, it's fascinating. And definitely one of the things I just think, even after this many viewings, there's nothing that could really sway me that it's, that's not at least in there a little bit on purpose. Right. I think, and it's, I think it's especially important to watch now. And I think our culture and American society is going through sort of like a, um, a period of time where we're taking time to like reflect and look back at and recognize and start to teach our kids, you know, what has actually happened in the history of our country. And that, you know, I think this is a great time as any to, you know, look at at all forms of art, books, movies, whatever, um, through that lens of like our, our history and some of the, you know, atrocities that have occurred. But on that light note. Um, <laughs> Let's talk about your next shot. Yeah. So um, I have so many things to say about this movie, but I think that one of the things that I love about this movie every time I watch it is um, Jack Nicholson's performance. And we were talking about this when we were watching it. Um, his face acting is on a whole other level where, you know, he sticks his tongue out. <laughs> yeah. He moves his eyebrows up and down. His cheeks stick out at various points. You know, he, tremendous, tremendous face acting. And it, it, it was making me think like, who does he remind me of? And, and I guess it's better like to <laughs> say is- who reminds me of him because he's maybe like the OG when it comes to this kind of face acting. Yeah. When you put, you know, Jack Nicholson and then, You've got Jim Carrey and then also throw in some Nicolas Cage. I feel like they're the face acting trifecta, right? Yeah. The like extreme faces, the extreme face offs, maybe you would. <laughs> I'm going to take his face yeah. off. Um, for listeners who've never seen the Nicolas Cage movie Face Off, please stop what you're doing right now <laughs> and go watch that movie. For anyone who doesn't know, I love Nicolas Cage movies. I'm yes, not ashamed. He's a fantastic actor. Okay, moving on. But I think that this kind of acting, like the extreme face acting, and you know, obviously it works for Nicholson in this movie because he is playing someone who's um, going through, you know, all kinds of things, family issues, writer's block, isolation, being haunted, and eventually going into sort of a madness. Possibly he's a reincarnation of (laughs) somebody else. Some other guy that looks exactly like him. (laughs) There's like a lot of stuff going on, right? But, you know, when he's scaring, he scares me in this movie. Like, I am terrified of him. Like, when he is talking to his child, when he's talking to his wife, and he's like, Wendy, darling, light of my life. (laughs) Like, he is freaking terrifying. And... But his faces, I just can't help but laugh. Like, it's scary, but I also laugh. He cracks me up in this film because he's just like such a, he's just like, he's like, I'm going for it. I'm just going to, you know, go for it. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it's it's unreal, the the lofty heights which, which he's going for. And part of me has to always wonder how much of that was, okay, this is him doing this character and doing that. I'm sure like the physical component, that's all him. That's all mm-hmm. Nicholson. But in terms of the depths in which this guy has to to plummet to to get to this this level of deranged on screen, um, you know how much of that is 
himself reading the the script and thinking, okay, this is how I'm going to play this character. And how much of that is just pure pent up frustration <laughs> at the fact that we had, they probably had to do over a year. They had to do principal photography for this movie. It took over a year of shooting because Kubrick was so meticulous on mm. every scene, every take. It's, it's one of the things that's like one of the big trade-offs in film history is every person that worked with Kubrick had this had a story to say okay this man has exactly every single frame in his mind every attention to detail spot checked and ready to go but what that means is if you're an actor <laughs> yeah, oh my goodness like there's no way that you can get a good take you have to get the perfect take and it's crazy and i and that's why i think this is such an interesting and really cool union of of an acting personality and a directing force because Nicholson is just, if you want a guy to do a million takes, I think he's your guy. There's this really famous story uh, Rob Reiner told um, one time, and I'll, I'll look for an article that mentions it and also post that in the notes. We're giving our fans a, a film uh, education this time <laughs> around, right? Um, and in this article or in the story that I've heard that Rob Reiner told, he said, you know... <laughs> We tried rehearsing with Jack Nicholson, the few good men take, you know, the you can't handle the truth, you know, that amazing speech, which is, you know, one of our favorite written lines or written scenes in a film of any film. And um, that's a personal favorite. But uh, that's such an incredible scene that Nicholson is doing so much in and he's overacting in that scene, too, but like in an amazing way, because it's like at the climax of the movie. And he said, after a couple of takes, I said, Jack, maybe you want to save a little bit for when we've got the camera on you because you've done all every scene, you know, every take perfectly. And he replied, Rob, you don't understand. I love to act. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I can only imagine him just doing Wendy, darling, <laughs> light of my life, like 50 times you know probably what it is? in the same day. He's a ham. He is a ham. He loves it. He loves, I mean, who's not, I mean... He's just as hammy in this. I would argue he's just as hammy as he is in this as he is in like a something's got to give. Yeah. Or like a departed. Oh, yeah. You know. He's uh, always been that way. You know. And even like, doesn't Jennifer Lawrence have like a funny story about when she met him and like he was the same like in person as she would expect <laughs> him to be? Like, <laughs> gosh. Yeah. There's just like so many funny stories about him that he's just quite the character. Yeah. Like, and he just seems to. Just always be like, you know what? Which I'm is just going for it. Super ironic because that going for itness, that hamness, you know, him just just to borrow a a phrase from our our favorite uh, podcast, uh, blank check. <laughs> he's swimming in the river of ham. I mean, that's <laughs> like there's no better way to put it. He's he's making that's a ham a sandwich. <laughs> he's he's. He's if he's Christmas with the cranks, he's the honey baked ham that Jamie Lee Curtis uh, almost buys. Wow! Yeah, deep cut reference there. That is very personal. Tis the I season. I I love that movie. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> well, I I think that it's such an interesting pairing because you know King famously Stephen King that is famously hated that performance, famously hated this movie, yeah. famously thought that Jack Nicholson was wrong for this role because he just looks. And seems and gives off this vibe that is sinister. He's the Joker, man. Literally was in 1989. 
<laughs> literally was. Yeah, I. It's it's so interesting because I think he's definitely up there as one of the most influential and talented actors. Yeah, but he doesn't get the sort of recognition because I think everyone's just like, oh yeah, he's Jack. He's just like man, he's a character. Man, he's just like he's his own deal, you know. But th- like people don't want to take him as seriously as like a Leo or Daniel Day Lewis or something. But I feel like he works just as hard. And yeah, is like <laughs> uh, I mean, it's like it's. Kind of wild that nobody uh, called us on the fact that, um, you know, we didn't include Nicholson last episode in our greatest actors of like this, you know, generation kind of, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, rankings. I mean, I think we were remiss to not include him. I mean, based on Oscar categories alone, he's won three Oscars. Uh, two for best actor, one for best supporting actor. And they're all in good movies. Mm-hmm. You know, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Terms of Endearment, and uh, As Good As It Gets. Those are all good movies. Mm-hmm. So it's not like he's turning in stinkers and getting no. nominated and winning awards for, uh, you know, crappy movies that he shouldn't. Those are all great. And he's been nominated so many times. And even in movies where he's not even the center stage, he tries to like make it his own movie. Mm-hmm. I think The he's Departed saying- is so famous for that. Same with Batman. Yeah few good men all those movies he just he tries to take it over and it's so great <laughs> yeah yeah anything you watch with him it's always interesting it's never dull i love us some nicholson absolutely so for my second shot i wanted to kind of touch more on a lot of the um attention to details aside from the um metaphorical genocide of, of native americans which I think is probably the overarching theme of this movie, but some other really cool attention to details um, that I I just really think are interesting. Um, And, you know, we can debate these if you want, but I just thought they were kind of fun to mention. Let's Um, debate. I love the whistling sound that happens every time The Shining happens. Every Mm -hmm. time Danny and, and Halloran, Dick Halloran, have a shining moment, there is a whistling kind of like high-pitched squeal sound happening in the background. It's to indicate, okay, their power is actually coming out right now. And I think that's just a really cool detail that if you notice it, you're like, oh, okay. Because sometimes that noise will start prior to showing that character having a trance, you know, because, Mm -hmm. you know, that's one of the things that The Shining does is that it induces this trance-like state where the person isn't really aware that they're like, having their mouth hanging open or that they are like slobbering on themselves or just, you know, shaking uncontrollably or in Danny's case, poor kid passing out, you know, in some cases, Mm -hmm. um, those kind of things are really interesting attention to detail and really good mix of sound design, not score sound design (laughs) with the, the plot of the movie. Um, some other cool details are, the Apollo 11 sweater that uh, <laughs> little Danny is wearing. In, Danny's sweaters are on fire. Yeah. Great fashion sense. Better than mine. For those <laughs> of you who know me, you know that that's a true statement. Um, but the Apollo 11 sweater, that has to be a reference to the theory, the conspiracy theory that Kubrick filmed the faked Apollo 11 moon landing. It's so funny. I, I didn't even know that until you told me that that was a conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. A hundred percent. And for those of you who believe that we did not land on the moon, uh, shame on you. 
Um, and then the last thing is that Jack becomes, you know, M- Mr. Torrance as Grady, the, the, the butler likes to say, you know, for the longest time, I thought that Jack was, um, basically becoming Grady. Like it was a kind of a, uh, a, a, a history repeating itself kind of thing, because they say that Grady in the seventies killed somebody, killed his family and then mm-hmm. shot himself. They explain that very early in the movie, right? And this movie takes place in the 70s, right? Because it was filmed like in 1978. And I think King's book takes place contemporaneously. It was published in the 70s. So it's a 70s set movie. Um, But upon further watching, I realized, okay, Jack doesn't become Grady. He becomes himself. He becomes Mr. Torrance, right? Mm. You've always been the the caretaker, right? As as he likes to put it, um, th- that plays in very heavily to the reincarnation theme, which is not super prevalent the first time you watch it until the very last. It shot. honestly still confuses me. <laughs> well, let's the let's reincarnation talk about it. thing. I think that Jack is always meant to be the caretaker because. Ever since the Overlook was built at in 1907, 1910, whenever he says it's done being constructed, they needed a caretaker. And that scene where they flash back and there's a lot of people in the ballroom, it's the second scene where Jack goes to the bar. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, right before the you corrected them scene, you know, uh, that takes place in the 20s, the mm-hmm. roaring 20s, you know, the music, the outfits, and the final shot showing. Uh, July 4th party, um, which I think is another ironic reference to America, right? Mm-hmm. Um, July 4th party, 1921, and Jack's right there. It, he has always been there, and then he dies, and the, or grows old, dies, and then comes back. He's tied to that hotel. It's, it's like uh, he lives an imprint on that hotel that is just evil, and... That, I think, is kind of up to interpretation, you know? So, is he and Mr. Grady the same person or the same spirit? That I wonder that. I wonder if they're either the same spirit or if they are what I think is probably more likely is um, Grady doesn't even exist at the same time as Jack, per se, because according to the, the plot and the exposition given at the beginning... Grady does the murdering in 1970 at the beginning of the decade, mm-hmm. 50 years after that photo is taken of Jack at the party. So what I'm thinking is happening is that um, the hotel is just kind of playing on two different things at once. The hotel is influencing Jack's mind in two different and taking two different things in his subconscious and kind of jamming them together right one is he's lived this before he's in a past life he was the caretaker of the hotel in the 20s when all those people who are in that 1920s scene probably were there in some capacity and you know later show up as skeletons while wendy is running around the hotel seeing all kinds of crazy shit um but then jack has also seen newspaper clippings of grady 
1970, shortly after he kills his two daughters and his wife and then himself, Mm -hmm. right? So I think the hotel in that one instance is taking those two things, putting them together and using that as kind of like a seductive, you know, ghostly kind of, okay, I'm just trying to make this man do my bidding because Mm -hmm. I am an evil force and I'm referring to the hotel as myself, right? <laughs> like, I, the hotel, am an evil force and I am eternal and I'm going to get this guy to do what I want, even if I have to show him all kinds of things that he doesn't really realize what he's seeing. They, he, The hotel does the same thing with the woman in the tub, one of the yeah. other most iconic scenes, albeit disturbing yeah. in this whole movie because, oh God, it is just nasty, <laughs> <laughs> nasty stuff. Um, But it's showing him, you know a lot of things that he desires. He probably subconsciously desires to drink, to have another woman other than his wife or, you know, or to have an affair of some sort. And uh, he, he probably, it's showing him all these things that he wants secretly. And, and then it, it comes to a head with Grady who says, you're always right. The other people are incorrect and you need to correct them. Yeah. You know? It kind of feeds on his sense of like insecurity. Of Inadequacy. Like, of like, because he, he's like, a he wants to be a writer. He is a school teacher, uh, sort of like Stephen King in real life. His early Semi-autobiographical. Um, and they make kind of a big deal at the beginning about how he's kind of ashamed that he's a teacher, Jack. He, he says, well, I'm not really a teacher. I'm actually an aspiring writer. Teaching's just more of a day job. And Great point. And then he's kind of, he wants to be the big man. And then, you know, these secret desires, like you said, that he has, the hotel kind of tells him, like, it's okay. And, and you're actually are this great man. You've always been the caretaker at this great hotel. And if you just do what we say, then, you know, you can give in to all of this. And yeah, I think it's all kind of feeding on itself from the very beginning. It is just like truly fascinating. Yeah, that, you know, it's fascinating that they were able to execute all that, that they were able to merge the writing, the acting, the directing, the cinematography, the music, all of it for however long this movie is. What is it? Almost two and a half hours? So I do have. Consecutively. Yeah, I do have one complaint about the attention to detail. <laughs> oh, yeah? Because I agree with you that there is attention to detail in like almost every aspect of this movie. The only thing that I think is inaccurate after having been in quarantine for like, you know, almost 10 months so uh-huh. uh, is that they would definitely not be fully dressed every day. They would be wearing their pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> There's like scenes where... You know, they get up and all they do is eat breakfast or Jack goes to write. Um, He's not really writing, we find out. But um, and they're all like fully dressed in their like sports attire or like Wendy's got these cool 70s outfits on. I was watching this and I was like, no way. If they were stuck in this hotel, just their family for months on end, they would definitely be wearing their pajamas every day and not like these super you know, I mean, they're not really even fancy clothes, but wearing jeans and shoes and sweater vests like that. No, it's a great point <laughs> And one that I don't think Kubrick. It's ever mostly about. me just making a joke about how I wear my pajamas a lot these days. Um, Fair enough. 
But no, I actually don't have a complaint about that. I just thought that was funny thinking about it in terms of like the isolation. Um, it was funny. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, yeah. So my third shot, um, it's hard to follow up with all of your like deep examinations of this film. Um, They're not that deep. I, I guarantee <laughs> people have gone way deeper. This no, is just I, after like number of rewatches. <laughs> um. So I think that something else that I want to talk about that's really interesting in this movie is, um, and you kind of brought it up when you were talking about the themes, but um, that there are so many ideas in this movie that it's almost hard to keep track of them all. And by ideas, I mean kind of like eclectic, or not even eclectic, but just classic movie or novel ideas things that writers like to write about and by that i mean you know the idea of writer's block is in this movie it's Mm -hmm. featured heavily the idea of you know family issues and even alcohol abuse the idea of the supernatural is in this um movie the idea of history and reincarnation and a lot of this of course is stephen king you know because he puts all of these like ideas in his books in more than one book For the listeners, um, if you couldn't tell, we love Stephen King. Yeah, and and I've only read this book partway through. To be honest, I've never read the whole book, and I have it. I should read it, but um, I've read some of his other novels, and he always does kind of have these themes, right? Um, and But this movie definitely is, like, if you're somebody who's creative, who's somebody who, you know, whether you like watching or reading things or you even create and write on your own i think that this is like definitely like a writer's movie and that <laughs> you know <laughs> it's like okay we're gonna yeah. talk about writer any movie that like actually discusses writer's block and kind of in this movie even delves into more than i guess i've read than the book where it, it has that iconic scene you know where <laughs> wendy finds what her his her husband has actually been writing over and over again. Um, And I think that, you know, it makes this movie even more sort of classic in that any movie that has those, you know, common writer themes in them, and you've mentioned the themes, but even just ideas are going to be more popular with the critics and are going to be more classic. Um, And I just think, you know, it's kind of fun to watch and see and and I do think I can see where Stephen King is kind of coming from. I love Jack Nicholson's portrayal of Jack in this movie. I love his hamness, but I don't buy that he's actually a writer. No? I don't, no. <laughs> I've never met somebody, I guess, who's a writer or who is, you know, akin to that or who does maybe who's like a journalist or something like that who... um is like him, I guess. <laughs> um, what? You've never read a, an overly gregarious journalist or writer? I think that there are some people who write that way, but maybe you aren't that way in person. Um, but it's, I still love his performance. I think it's great. But um, Oh, this is great. This is like, this is the best take I think I've heard on this character because I never even thought about that. You know, how he doesn't really carry himself as a writer. He carries himself as kind of an entitled, you know, for lack of a better word, asshole <laughs> yeah. in the movie. Um, 
I just, I, I guess I just always think, minimized that thought of him as a writer in my mind. So it's, yeah, I love this take to hear brought up. It's weird because, yeah, it is a writer's movie in that it addresses the idea of um, writer's block and mm-hmm. stuff. But um, I think that it's interesting when you do examine his character that he's not like your typical writer. And I think writers love writing about other writers and sometimes they make them out to be more interesting than writers actually are. (laughs) Um, But I think that, you know, it's, it's still a great character and it's very interesting. And maybe that's why he's not a good writer is because he is, you know, he's got this like wild fixation on, on things, but he isn't able to put it on paper. I don't know. Maybe that's part of his um, issue. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, to be sure. I mean, uh, I think that that's one of the things that probably Stephen King hated the most about this movie is that it wasn't writerly enough. Yeah. You know, and that Jack Nicholson, the amazing actor that he is, giving the amazing performance that he is, was just too off-putting as somebody that would actually be a believable writer. And I think that King really wanted to showcase... Uh, a type of story that happens to a writer and that happens to somebody that is putting something ahead of their family and the consequences of that. And, you know, he's gone on record multiple times saying that this movie is semi-autobiographical. He was going through drinking and writer's block and familial stress at the time of writing that book. Um, And he pulled from those experiences to write the the movie. But, um, you know, he probably wanted the the main end of the story and the main message to be that okay you can kind of make a difference even in that you can overcome, you can those, overcome issues. those things you can overcome your demons and jack <laughs> dies as in the book spoilers as a result of a blown up boiler instead mm-hmm. of a uh, freezing to death which we'll talk about in last call um but that definitely not the case in the movie i think yeah. kubrick was straight up okay we need the most sinister guy to play a sinister role and yeah it's very easy to see why king didn't like it. it's almost as if the message of kubrick's movie is that you can't overcome these demons like right it's like america can't overcome its demons and you personally you know this character jack or whoever could see themselves in jack's shoes cannot overcome his personal demons right and that's a pretty dark message it's so dark because yeah when you take when you pan out what do you take away from this is (laughs) it is very dark we don't even know if wendy okay we'll get into this in last call but there's like the ending is so ambiguous to the point of it almost hurts yeah um (laughs) you kind of feel like jack frozen stiff with his tongue out like dead it just hurts so painful how ambiguous this ending is and i normally like ambiguous endings but this one we're gonna get into it but real quick let me just touch on my third shot which is this movie and we've been dancing around this the whole time is so cinematic i think in majority part due to this is one of the first movies that used and popularized uh steady cam Steadicam, the new technology in the late 70s, a bunch of movies in the late 70s kind of used it, but Shining is also one of the first. And for those of you guys who don't know, Steadicam is like a stabilizing kind of a mount for a film camera, and it separates the 
fil- the camera operator's movement from the cameras. So in other words, if you're going over bumps or upstairs or over different types of terrain, the camera will stay steady. Oh. And that is how Kubrick was able to get some of the most iconic shots in film history for this movie, including probably the most famous, which is him tracking Danny on a tricycle through yeah. the hotel in one continuous take. That is some like, you know, the amount of things that have crimped from that and taken from that and drawn inspiration from that is endless. That list is quite literally endless because people saw that for the first time with this movie and had their minds blown. And it still looks good 40 years on. Yeah. That's how influential it is. It still looks really good. It's and, still, yeah. Go and ahead. The, I was just going to say the ideas behind those shots, like him tracking um, Danny on his like little tricycle through the hotel. Um, I just think they're like really interesting because a lot of it is there's no dialogue. It's just the scene playing out. And I think that's what makes it sometimes more spooky because it gives into the silence or the music Mm -hmm. and also just makes it more like this kind of mundane real life thing as opposed to a lot of movies where you're just jumping from scene to scene from dialogue to dialogue, which is another style and approach that can work really well for certain movies. But I feel like this movie kind of slows down in some respects and then ramps up again. Yeah. And, and, and that's so interesting about the camera. I had no idea. Yeah. And, and then you couple that new technology that he uses in the tracking shot with Danny in the panning shots in the maze where you go from like one part of the maze through a wall to oh, the yeah. other part of the maze out back again to see Jack chasing Danny. And then you see Danny hiding in for, you know, for life basically just in one continuous shot like that is unheard of in 1980 now it's taken for granted but in the context with everything else you've got going on at that same time which is this climactic last 15 minutes um the the music kind of uh the the synths of the original score being very very heavily used in the last few minutes except for that eerie silent part right before Jack Torrance kills Dick Halloran in mm-hmm. this horrifying moment. <laughs> yeah. Jumping out of nowhere. Poor um, Halloran. Yeah. Poor Dick Halloran. Um, I, I think that that, and you combine that with the other really amazing shots, like we mentioned before, the, the helicopter shots at the beginning of the movie um, of this Montana road that just looks absolutely beautiful and stunning. Um, and, you know, all the other really really amazing framed shots in this movie. And I think the Steadicam takes the center stage. It's the most memorable part, but you know, I think it, it also plays like the role of a larger part of a whole and, and just really sounds, it really makes everything kind of greater than the sum of its parts. Um, So yeah, shout out to um, Garrett Brown, the inventor of the Steadicam. (laughs) Like, I don't know if he realized just how much he would, uh, influence cinema and also John Alcott, who is the director of photography and uh, cinematographer for this movie. Um, iconic mm-hmm. stuff. He shot a lot of Kubrick stuff. And so the two of them hand in hand when it comes to putting really amazing stuff on screen. I feel like there's so many people who make a movie cinematic that you don't even know or hear about, but 
play a huge role in the production of movies and the behind the scenes that don't get recognized enough. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And that's one of the things I really want to, you know, kind of put to light on with our show is just how much of an of a an undertaking actually filming a movie is. <laughs> and as somebody that has tried to make an amateur film before, I can tell you <laughs> no way and how, no way no how I could ever <laughs> have the uh the ability and and thought to make a real one. Oh, sure you could. Absolutely not. <laughs> I'm sure you could. <laughs> Only if we can film it in our backyard like we did when we were. I'll write it, you film 14. it. How about that? All right, it's going to be shaky. <laughs> <laughs> not steady. It'll be, you know, very artsy with the shaking. It'll be like, you know, one of those paranormal activity type. What was, no, not paranormal. What am I thinking of? When that was really popular when you had like the shaking camera movies for a few years you're talking about every film film between 2005 <laughs> and 2009 yeah basically um gotcha so now uh want to move on to our last call so last call you say I would love to talk about the ending of this movie because as we know, all good things must come to an <laughs> end. Um, this movie's ending is is so strange and ambiguous and makes you feel all kinds of ways because you, you're supposed to feel relief at the end of a horror movie, I feel like. Or if not, um, I mean, okay, that's kind of a, a stupid opinion. I feel like a lot of horror movies end with horror still you know <laughs> terrifying stingers and cliffhangers and 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 openings for a sequel um but not the shining the shining is very much you know that uncomfortable feeling you felt well you're going to continue to feel it way <laughs> after this movie's done yeah and just think about this while you go home not shy at all so Let's talk about our definition of ending here. This is something that we kind of talk about in Last Call. Um, I think this movie's ending starts once both Jack and Danny exit the maze. Mm. Or not exit the maze, exit the hotel and go into the maze. And while that is like a bit longer, one, we already talked about the last shot of the film, which is... The 4th of July party at the Overlook Hotel in 1921. But that's the part that we, I mean, we talked about it a little bit, but okay, to can, me, that is the ending. You, to okay. you, that's the ending? Yeah. Okay, then real quick, let's just talk about the final <laughs> chase scene. So in the end, Jack is in an iconic, and I cannot stress this enough, iconic shot in cinema history, chasing Danny through this maze with these tracking shots of Steadicam going from one maze section to the other. Danny misleads his father, by putting a false trail of footprints that Jack follows deeper into the maze and then gets lost. Whereas Danny, knowing his way out by now because he visited that maze earlier with his mother, Wendy, finds his way out. Wendy, after seeing some horrific shit in the hotel and him escape in the snowcat vehicle down the mountain. Real quick, before you continue, I just want to say, because we didn't mention, like, Shout out to Danny Lloyd, who plays Danny in this movie. Like He's great. He's incredible. And I was reading just a little bit about his role. 
And he was selected by Stanley Kubrick because this kid, when he was six, was able to concentrate super well. But because he was so little and young, they didn't even tell him really that it was a horror film. And he didn't really find out that it was a horror film till a few years later when he got a bit older. And he just really didn't start. He think he started in like one other movie. And then he came back and did a cameo in Dr. Sleep. The sequel um, to this movie, yeah. which was released in 2019. Which I'm sure there's a drink in that we can talk about. Um, but uh, it's some future episode. But uh, I think that I just am blown away every time by his performance. And especially, like you said, throughout the whole movie, he just like, he's so confident. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> for being six, you know? And yeah. then... Um, Especially with this chase scene, like you're saying, so go ahead and continue. But I just, I just realized when you were talking about that that scene, how we didn't even talk about him. Well, I mean, he really shines. I think in the last third he of shines. this movie, <laughs> got him. He really does shine, though, in the last thirty minutes of this movie because he is one doing some incredible face acting of his own, and he goes through the gamut of emotions from, you know horrified to stoic to curious i mean he does a lot of different stuff and for being so young is actually kind of really how do impressive you do that when you're six like i just don't even understand. how do you do that when you're six and not knowing the context of anything that yeah, you're doing like uh, yeah it's interesting but some people are born with the gift and i <laughs> think he was and yeah, I guess he just didn't really want to. He was probably parlay it one of those children career. too, who was like really good at talking to adults. You know, Uh, you can relate. <laughs> that was definitely you. I don't know if I would have been a good actor, but I think like I don't know if he was an only child or not. But I think that some kids are like, and Kubrick probably was like, "Wow, this kid can like really pay attention and like do you know, kind of converse with me." Because that scene that you love with him and Halloran talking. Yeah. Um, and I love that scene too, where they're just like having a normal conversation. Well, it's not a normal conversation, but it's <laughs> as if to the two of them, it's a normal conversation. And he just keeps up with Halloran. They're just like ha- talking about all this like intense stuff. He actually makes Halloran uncomfortable <laughs> because he actually has more control over his power and knows more things about the hotel than Halloran is actually willing to admit. So yeah, yeah that is an amazing scene. You're right. And he, he just is able to talk to him like he's an adult. But we're talking about yeah. the ending. Sorry. It's okay. So they Wendy and 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 um, Daniel escape into the mountains. Who knows if they make it to civilization? We don't. Um, smash cut. Jack has frozen to death outside in the maze. He could not find his way out. And so his body is frozen stiff. He's blue. He's got icicles hanging off of him, and you know it, the 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 sound in this ending is just wild because you know the entire time that Danny is escaping and being pursued, and even after they finally make their escape and Jack is still stuck in the maze, all you hear is synth score mixed with Jack screaming and just screaming after his son, kind of becoming less and less coherent. It's a full devolution to uh, just rampaging lunatic, right? And then that finally ends. They make their escape, smash cut to him dead. And then this smooth jazz starts to just kind of fade in. And then you go back into the hotel and it's this slow zoom um, from 
this outside hallway into the hotel's wall of 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 memories i guess for lack of a better thing it's a bunch of photographs taken in prior years of the hotel they're all black and white they all have a lot of people in them because they're taken during balls or parties or events and then you zoom in on one and there's a familiar figure standing right there at the front of the photo in front of this huge crowd of people and as you zoom in you realize it's none other than jack a man out of time Mm -hmm. and you pan down after it fully zooms in on his face and it says July F- Overlook Hotel, July 4th party, 1921. Yeah. 1921. 50 years before anything in this, over 50 years before anything in this movie happens. And it, if you weren't curious about reincarnation and history repeating itself before the last shot of The Shining, man, does Kubrick <laughs> want to make sure you get it by the last shot. Yeah, you know it's a good ending because it it always freaks me out every time. <laughs> like it's I know, so unsettling. I know it's coming, but maybe it's for the same reason. This is gonna sound weird, but I do love watching historical dramas and historical movies about historical events. But I have to be in a certain mood to watch them, and sometimes they freak me out. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's like normal or whatever, but. Um, I think that sometimes thinking about history and what has happened and in certain contexts and, you know, it does make me think a lot. Um, and this movie kind of blending that, um, history of this hotel and some of the darker themes with the idea of this at that time, modern day seventies man and, and kind of jamming them together and being like, well, maybe they're the same person. Maybe it's reincarnation. Maybe, you know, this kind of idea of, you know, history repeating itself is always with us. And it's not something that we can really escape. And I think that's what scares me and what, you know, watching a lot of times h- historical movies kind of freaks me out because I'm like, you know, it seems so removed, but at the same time, people are often still the same, and sometimes they have the same evil motivations and the same, you know, hum- sometimes, of course, too, like, decent human characteristics, but I think that, you know, any good history teacher <laughs> will <laughs> want to impart messages on their students about, you know, like, it's important to learn history um, and to learn what has happened so that we can, you know, learn from move it. forward and learn from it. And yeah. this movie kind of reflects upon those ideas by having your main character be somebody who's been at the hotel and and as um and as Grady says has always been the caretaker. Um it's just such an interesting concept and you don't really catch when and when Grady tells him about halfway through the film that he's always that Jack has always been the caretaker. Um it, and then when you rewatch it the second time, you know, and the third time and the fourth time, you're like, oh my gosh, you know, you think of that iconic picture at the very end where he was indeed the caretaker in 1921 and mm-hmm. Grady is not lying. Jack has always been the caretaker at the hotel. And I mean, that's a whole other idea that we, you probably could analyze further. Like, what does it mean to be a caretaker and what is the symbolism of that job? Mm -hmm. You know, taking care of a hotel, which is a symbol of 
violence and disturbing things. You know, you have the murder, the red rum, the the violence that has occurred against Native Americans on their land. And who knows how many other atrocities that show up in Wendy's visions. Yeah, because I was just going to that's so true. Like, Wendy sees, like, the sexual acts being performed and then you can say it the furry scene yeah (laughs) the the probably the first popular furry scene put to camera yeah that's true yeah that's true in 40 years (laughs) before it was cool (laughs) (laughs) and then you've got like (laughs) the bathtub scene you've just got all kinds of things that are supposed to show that this is like a disturbing place right oh yeah and jack has always been the caretaker of this like disturbing place. It's just interesting. I think it's so true. And and I love that you brought up the point of of history repeating itself, which is definitely one of the the last things that you're thinking of at the ending, like we said. Um, and it's also such a prevalent theme in the works of Stephen King. Because if you think about it, how many f- works does King have that either A, take place in two different timelines and it's about oh okay our past selves have to come and reckon our future selves have to come and reckon with the things we did in the past you know i'm thinking specifically of it Mm -hmm. you know which takes place in two different timelines and having to history literally repeat itself um you know you've got huge epic works like shawshank that takes place over many many years um that have older characters mentoring younger characters um, you know, the list goes on. And I think that that is something that King just is fascinated with is that idea of history repeating itself, particularly when it comes to the United States and not reckoning with its demons. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think it all kind of comes full circle with that really ambiguous ending that is so ambiguous in its themes that you don't even think about something like, it wasn't until this rewatch that I realized, dude, do Wendy and Danny actually get away? Do they actually make it to somewhere safe? I mean, you would think, but what if that that you know snowcap breaks down? What if they run out of gas? What if they don't make it or Randy doesn't know how to drive it to the point of the next town or anything could go wrong mm-hmm. and they never show it? You don't get that that relief. You don't get that resolution. Yeah, I don't think you are supposed to. I think I don't think so either. I think it's really supposed to be about the hotel at the very, like, at least that's Kubrick's. I think Stephen King, from what I've read, his novel is about, you know, the characters and their humanity and maybe their special powers too. But the movie is is about the hotel and its effects on the people, I think. Yeah. Ultimately. And that's kind of how what you get at the end. I think you're absolutely right. I think King was like, these characters are very interesting, very three-dimensional, very realized. And Kubrick was like, uh, ha-ha, haunted house go burr. You know? <laughs> like, he was like, oh, I just really want to make my, my scary-ass it's movie still, and be commercially viable. It's still, I mean, viable. super deep and of course like we've talked about on and on and on all these themes you can extract from it visually uh, uh, probably um more than anything you can extract the themes from it but um i think that yeah at the end the point a lot of it is about history and the hotel's history which is it's fascinating and the fact that there are so many readings into this uh film 
as well as its ending is why it's an all-timer and mm-hmm. why I have finished my Jack uh, just talking about it, all two <laughs> fingers, gone at once. I'm going to need a refill, but before that, I think uh, we should wrap up this episode because I think we've said as much as we can in one sitting yeah. about The Shining, but rest assured, there are so much more to be said. Yeah, and uh, we have some exciting news about next week's episode that we want to share. Yes, next week, uh, a first-time occurrence for the episode. We're going to be doing an inspired buy for our K-Drink, but there's so many great options, we didn't really know which one to choose. So, please follow us on social media, specifically our Facebook page, at MomixPod, M-O-M-I-X-Pod. That's also our Instagram handle. But on Facebook, if you follow us, we will be throwing a poll out to our listeners in a few days time after releasing this episode where we will give a few different options for our K episode, uh, which will be an inspired by drink. Uh, We will name the cocktail and the film that we want to go to pair with it. um, And we will let our our listeners vote and decide which one (laughs) we're going to do. We've got some pretty fun choices, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, all of them are hitting different um, parts of your brain. (laughs) but I think all three are very good movies that uh, we would really enjoy watching either way. So either way, we win. And if we win, you guys win. (laughs) So I think that that is going to be super exciting. Um, If you have other suggestions for us, please write us an email at momixpod, M-O-M-I-X-pod at gmail.com. Don't put an at before that that was me writing uh, <laughs> on the other social media platforms it's just momixpod at gmail.com if you want us to uh, read a fan question on the show or have some sort of uh, insight for us please let us know please rate and review us on apple podcasts or follow us on spotify and get us wherever you get your podcasts because we always love growing our listenership we always love talking with new people about film and drinks whenever possible um and yeah that about does it for Stanley Kubrick's The Shining and this wonderful Jack Daniels. Uh, what do you got to plug, Marissa? Anything you wanted to add? Um, nothing much. This has just been really fun. I have loved talking about, I mean, I love all of our episodes and all of our movies, um, but this has been really fun and I'm excited to see what you guys think our next movie should be. So look out for that poll should be coming out um, probably Sunday, the day after we usually release. I think so, yeah. So, with that, and until next time, Marissa, darling, light of my life. <laughs> Good job. Red Rob. <laughs>